Who is an artist called to make art for? What's the driving force leading them to create? We ask an art historian for his perspective after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. As a historian, I don't often think about my professional writing as art. The desire for clarity and factual accuracy can often make writing history feel more like technical writing than anything else. Yet in other ways, writing, of history or anything else, is inherently artistic. In my own writing, I think about structure and storytelling. I write to relay a message, inform, and share. I ultimately want to move readers to reconsider something about what they know. In this episode, our associate director at Upper House, Cam Anderson, sits down with his good friend and noted art historian and artist, Wayne Rusa. They have a conversation about what drives them to make art. For those of us who are artists, we're listening in on two veteran artists explore the deepest motives of their work. For the rest of us who might participate in creative acts like writing, speaking, or teaching, Cam and Wayne's conversation gives us concepts and language to rethink our own work in new and interesting ways. Wayne Rusa is University Professor of Art History Emeritus at Bethel University, as well as Chair of the New York Center for Art and Media Studies. He holds a BA from the University of Colorado and an MA and PhD in Art History from Rutgers University. He's published academically on art history and is a painter with works displayed in galleries all over the country. We hope you enjoy this upwards conversation between Cam and Wayne Rusa. Well, good morning, Wayne. Uh, Good to be in a conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. Good to good to revisit this this. Subject. So I was I was trying to think as we prep for the call today. Um, how long have you and I been having a conversation about art and faith and life? Oh wow, um, thirty five years. Yeah, I think something like that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and we yeah. really have been in a conversation, you know, in fits and starts over time, but um, you're one of my favorite conversation partners on this topic, and of course, a, a good long friend. Um, it was uh, our good fortune to have you here at Upper House last April for a conference uh, we um, themed, Let the Art Speak. And as the different participants in that conference, we had this chance to get on a Zoom call, uh, some you know time before that conference, just to sort of chat around the idea: what should we talk about, and how should the presentations go, et cetera. And at one point, Wayne, I actually think you said out loud, "Well, we should let the art speak." Um, and from that point forward, we were talking about putting the art itself out in front of the discourse. Um, and that thought captured my imagination as something I've always wanted to get back to you about and talk about this idea of letting the art speak. So I wonder what yeah. your thoughts are about that. Um, yeah, yeah, actually I actually have a lot of thoughts. I mean, first of all, that's actually my mantra as a uh, art historian, art writer. I'm always tempted to start putting all my verbiage up front. 
and then finally get to the art object and it always goes bad if i do that hmm. so i've 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 tried to always remember first you put up the artwork you let that do some work uh, on the on the viewer and 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 then some words maybe are needed so um all of which is to say art objects actually are saying something but they do it so silently for the most part um and our culture is so fast moving and yakky um that it, it becomes a dilemma to to actually let art um speak mm -hmm. and increasingly though i understand art is a discourse mm -hmm. there is the visual discourse reality is visual it's embodied it's material and expressive and and that's the realm artists operate in um so when you use a term like discourse um can sound like academies in a way right but what are you thinking about when you use the word discourse yeah i mean there's maybe we could use other words it's a it's a conversation uh but that sounds a, a little light mm -hmm. sometimes it's an it's an intercourse mm -hmm. um one of my great uh favorite teachers undergrad george woodman used to say art is a woven tapestry over the uh uh what do you say it was it a, a, Art is a woven um, shawl over the shoulders of humanity. Oh, wow. That's a lovely and, image. And uh, each, each person weaves or unweaves the part that's draped over them. Um, yeah, I really like that. Most of the images, I would suggest, as, dis, as, you know, quote, discourse. Right. So when you think about art speaking, um, I guess we're sort of personifying an art object or even an experience in that way, right? What, what are the ways in which that you, you think art speaks uh, in this visual art, you know, to the viewer, but we could say, you know, to the listener where music is concerned or the space of architecture or other things. But when you think about art speaking, Wayne, um, what does that mean to you? Yeah, when, when you sent me that this morning, I, I, I made a note. I said, let art speak. Maybe we should say, let art be. Um, it's, such a, it's such an embodied way of speaking. Mm -hmm. um, so it requires us to bring our mind, body, soul as a unit into its physical, expressive presence. And it's almost more, I mean, we listen to it in quotes, but it's, um, it's more we, we relate our, our being to it. Mm -hmm. um, that's obvious in architecture, for example, or, or like you say, in music. Um, I watch people's body language in front of paintings in museums. Mm -hmm. um, most of them look for three seconds and move on, but right. um, the ones that are really looking, um, it's really interesting how they they locate themselves and they settle and um yeah i like that form you know yeah i like that image a lot i was uh <clears throat> talking with a student group here at, at upper house on monday night a little group that meets every two weeks in our fellows program uh, talking about art and culture and we were talking about how you know the experience of engaging art and um one of the things I said is we, as we try to understand what's happening in art or how to read it, uh, 
the, the first thing that happens, and the artist, I think, feels this, she, he feels this as a burden, is uh, uh, we, have a, we have to have an encounter with the art. There's, gotta be some, there's something going on in the art that causes us to stop and pause, just like you're saying right now, right? What's, and then what's that posture? What does it look like when someone's really looking? Um, and, what, and what speaking or what kind of presence does the art have? Yeah. yeah, I like that word encounter. Um, obviously, each work of art's got to have something in it that arrests our attention. Um, I used to, uh, when we were looking at figure painting in my art history classes, I used to make my students stand up and uh, take the pose of the figure in the in the painting. Um, because all those poses are they're artifice, they are their manners, their conventions that meant a great deal um, about about being human and how a human being holds themselves. And of course there always be a lot of laughter and joking around, but, right. but once they got serious about it, it it really is well, you know, how would it feel to stand nobly? Right. Like this pulling portrait of an aristocrat. We don't even believe in aristocrats here. Right. Right. In our, in our, in our so-called democracy, uh -huh. even though we've got our version of them. But but that, that that that's like a literal and kind of goofy direct encounter. There's a there's a figure in that image that is posed a certain way. Right. And we're standing there, you know, slouched like a good American. Uh, <laughs> What if you put that into literally into motion as a as a dialogue, right? And the same works even for abstract paintings. It's like where, where you know, kind of where where is your being in relation to this field of of color? Um, there were studies of how people looked at Barnett Newman's *Vir Heroicus Sublimus*, giant heroic painting, um, and and people literally located themselves differently in the the interviewer. Um, you know, tried to ask them about that. So that encounter is crucial, but it, but it's a tactile encounter. It it's is right. Verbal. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I find myself doing the same thing. So you know, I, I know both of us have spent a lot of time in art galleries, museums, and and, and I do the same thing that just about any other visitor or patron does. I sort of go on cruise control, right? I find myself sort of walking around the space, but then all of a sudden there's something about some kind of a, something happening in a painting or a sculpture or something that causes me to pause and, wait, I have to look at this a little bit more. And I even wonder within myself, well, why is it that I pause? What did I stop for? What am I hoping to see here? Yeah. Um, part of what I was saying to the students on Monday night is, and and approaching art that way, that that's really okay for you, for you to do it like that. But then when you do pause, then it's also important, I think, to ask why. What what's going on here? What experience am I having right now with this piece of work that caused me to stop? Yeah, yeah. That you know, C.S. Lewis wrote this little book called "Experiment and Criticism." Um, it's an old book, but it's still worth looking at. Um, and his argument about relating to art, music, or literature was typically we simply bring what we already know and feel to the work. Hmm. And if nothing in the work overrides that, we, we're done with it. Um, but what we'll do is learn to lay aside what we already think and feel and let the work read us. 
Um, and so artists have strategies for that, right? They do something that's shocking. Right. Or something that's weird or something that's just so visually powerful, overwhelming, you want to look at it. Um, and, and, you know, and that kind of goes to the, the question underneath it of how, how does an artist make something that will have a chance of being seen or, or a chance of arresting the, the viewer? Yeah, I always feel, and you're not only an art historian, you're a studio artist, and um, so you're making stuff in the studio all the time, and I make things too, and that's sort of that double challenge I always feel when I'm working on things, and I know you do as well, right? Well, there are there, there's things that I want to accomplish when I'm making things by hand, if you will, and... Um, but I also feel like, well, I want to make something that's going to be interesting to other people and engage them that other people may want to look at because I feel like, well, if I'm just working in my studio alone, um, but then not having that other experience of having people experience what I've made, uh, that's only I'm only doing the first half of the project. So, um, which is to say... Am I going to go forward with something that has personal meaning to me, but I feel like won't ever connect with an audience? And is, is it worth my time? Right? It's that internal yeah. dialogue I think we're always having when we make stuff. I, what's that like for you? Uh, oh, oh, it's similar. Um, I mean, there's there's days where I think, you know, just you know, make something that that moves me. Um, I am human. I share a lot of things with other humans. Um, so if it if it moves me, you hope it will move someone else. Well, it, it kind of comes down to either I tend to want to work very personally if I find something that moves me and hope that my common humanity is such that it will move other people, at least some. Um, or I start thinking, well, maybe there's a better way to make something relevant. Um, you know, we're living in times of real turmoil now, so it's, it's easy to think, well, I, I need to say something relevant, um, which pushes your work towards what? Being political or being overtly theological or philosophical? Yeah, yeah, that was actually a th one of the ideas I wanted to pursue with you, that right across University Avenue here from where we're located at Upper House is the Chazen Art Museum and the Humanities Building, where all the most of the art students study. And art students tell me that their experience in the classroom at UW is substantially about politics, that uh, they feel a burden really to make art that is politically engaged and. Um, I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. Uh, you know, over, I mean, over the decades now, really, right? Your experience of being an art student, doing PhD work in art history, having been the chair of the art department at Bethel University for a couple decades, right? Just um, has art always been this political? Is it more political now? Um, so that's maybe first part of the question, and then 
Um, can we make art that's not about politics that's still somehow relevant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge questions, I know, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, in one sense, I think there are different spheres of human culture, and the, and the political is one, the aesthetic is one. There, there's a lot of kind of spheres, and maybe they each have their core that's, that's true to the nature of that activity, but they also all overlap with each other. So in my conversations with artists, I think the, the best conversations I've had are uh, the idea of, of really finding that deeper core and making work out of it, which, which will have the byproduct of being political. Mm. Um, but it's a real choice to say, no, my work's going to be specifically political. And there are times for that. Um, right. Picasso's Guernica, famous mm -hmm. example. Although I just read recently new research where uh, no one liked that work when he did it or even understood what he was doing. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. Um, but there's different ways of being, of being political. And, you know, when you're teaching undergraduates, one of the things you're always looking for is, um, you know, the one-liner. Um, a student makes a work, they feel like they've taken a shot at the world. But it's kind of a one-liner. It's like clever, um, but it doesn't resonate with deeper thought. Um, and so the goal is to not do a one-liner, but to ask what's what's the human condition that's leading us to this political moment, and can I speak more to that that deeper condition, something that's both specific and universal. Um, the harder task, but so well, I, I would always try to convince them to spend a little more time asking questions um, about what's really going on as opposed to just reacting with I hate that law that was just passed right right um, you know what, what what's kind of the deeper thing that's 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 involved there um, or I feel like my rights are being infringed or someone else's rights are being infringed but yeah, yeah. what are the deeper broader patterns in culture and across time that are even going on i yeah i think you know one of the things you often remind us of and and, and at the let the art speak conference you brought us straight into the what does it mean to be human um actually what's the nature of humanity itself right and yeah. i feel like art that's one of the things art's really good at if you will to keep encountering that question of what does it mean to be human uh, partly because or, or not least because art's being made by humans um it, it's it's the work of their hands the work of their minds right um yeah yeah and you know even abstract artists um have seen themselves sometimes as very political right um you know Stuart davis for example american painter was criticized by clement greenberg during the the world war Second World War for making what Greenberg called decorative work, um, not addressing the the you know the the horror of the war. And Davis responded by saying, um, "Sometimes in the midst of horror, it's an act of courage to make something beautiful." Mm. Um, the abstract expressionists very much took that that approach. They they felt like if you made overtly political work, you just got sucked into the argument. That nobody can win, right? Um, right. But if they backed up and made deep mythic work that was big and moving, it was an affirmation of being here. Um, 
So, well, yeah, right. That and and that leads me to ask. So, art has, can have various purposes and functions, right? So, I think we'd agree that there's a, a social and political function that art can have, and probably even should have. Um, then there's this question, and they're not exactly opposed to each other, but what about just making art for beauty's sake, or art that is uh, contemplative, that leads us to exploration of inner life and inner being? Um, I feel like a fair bit of the work you do actually shows up in that second space, Wayne. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I, I think it has a parallel with the the, uh, the one-liner issue. Mm. Make let's say you make art for beauty's sake. The one-liner is you figure out how to use color, or form, or some kind of sensational effect. Mm -hmm. It's virtuosic. Mm -hmm. You first look at it and go, "Wow, that's like that's amazing!" How did they, you know? Look at those patterns. But it but it doesn't sustain you. Um, in my view, that means you had a very thin understanding of beauty. If you really start examining what is beauty, it is in, it is engaged with the human condition in in ways of struggle of of, of things that are not pretty. Um, and so, again, if you ask deeper questions, you push into a kind of deeper sense of beauty. And when you encounter a work like that, um, it holds up um, and it keeps keeps you thinking. And, and the same is true for contemplation, something that causes you to still yourself. Think of the role of music, like in war, um, where soldiers fight all day, and then someone plays a guitar in the trenches at night. You know, what's going on there? Right, right. And, and can we survive without without that? Um, so it could be the. Well, I think it is the case that uh, art that well that we encounter is beautiful, or maybe art that encourages or leads us to contemplation can sometimes be very difficult work um yeah I'm, I, something that intrigues me is i wonder you know why it is that certain pieces of art in my home that i value cherish what why is it that they they continue to engage me or certain works of artists that you know I, I kind of like or prefer why do i keep coming back to them again and again and and often it's because i don't quite feel like i've gotten everything from that piece of work that is there to be gotten right um and yeah. though i've already received a lot from it and um and, I, and i'm just surprised <clears throat> that these pieces keep drawing me in mm -hmm. I, I think that goes back to our opening conversation because um, there's two levels for me I you know of getting getting what the work has to offer for me that's maybe a little more in the content level mm -hmm. but the reason I keep returning to them is I just want to be with them oh. there's there's something about being that the artist has um, manifest has embodied and the artist might be you know, speaking to me in more in a narrative voice about the subject matter of the work, but if the if the deep formal qualities of the work have really engaged the way we are here, 
then I find myself just wanting to be with it. I like that. And it, um, it reminds me that there are certain works like that, you know, and, and some, again, sometimes there are things that we actually collect, right? We're, we're collectors as well of, um, uh, there, there are certain pieces that simply just put me at rest. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you say I want to be with them, they, they put me at rest. There's a little porcelain bowl that we bought sometime many years ago, and it just has this uh, glaze on it, and this there's a red oxide little patch on this bowl, and it sits on a shelf, and I just want to look at it. Um, and I'm not even sure why still, but it, I look at it and it puts me at rest, kind of just the form of this little bowl and this patch of glaze on it. Um, yeah. 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 Since you mentioned a ceramic piece, um, one of the pieces I talked about when I spoke at Upper House were these big storage vessels made by David Drake, 1830s. David Drake was an enslaved person. Uh, he was a potter, um, and he made these <clears throat> these really powerful amphora forms. They were just pragmatic things for storage, mm-hmm. you no know, tin cans in the day. Um, but there's something in the form of them that is weighty, that has gravitas. It's it's loosely figurative. We even talk about those forms as having shoulders and feet, um, right? And so just as a form with the kind of patina he put on it, it's, it's, it holds you the way your ceramic piece holds you. Um, but then he also, and so here we go back to the political, he also inscribed little poems on the shoulders of these that were poems about enslaved peoples. And they were very, they were almost like haiku, mm. coded. So I don't think his owners even knew what they were hinting at. Um, but they were his little poems of lament and elegy to other enslaved peoples and to their condition. And added to that was the fact that the, that, that state had just made it illegal for enslaved peoples to learn to read or write as a way of keeping them from rising up ever. But David Drake had learned to read and write. And so it's an incredible act of defiance and courage and risk right. for him to write these little poems. Um, and yet he did it so quietly, to my knowledge, he got away with it. Hmm. Uh, and there they stand bearing witness, this beautiful form. And, you know, they're, they're dark, rich, brown, black surfaces. Right. And now we look back and I think, yeah, like the bodies of enslaved people. Right. Right. They're full of full of dignity. They're full right. of power and weight and gravity and seriousness. But these little gorgeous and you know, you think of the music that enslaved peoples invented to comfort themselves and that we now play and, and love in right. forms of blues and so on. I mean to me there that's an example of a multi leveled art piece working that I, I just want to be with, but I also read it politically, narratively. Right, right. right. Yeah. So you know that's a really rich example to me. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and it, um, it relates to another question I thought we might talk about, um, and that's just 
the place and of art and art practice that is, you know, art objects, spaces, and things, but then the, the practice, uh, the discipline of, of making them, right, producing things. Um, what is the place of art and art practice in the this larger public arena that we live in these days? And um, in particular, one of the things I know we're both very aware of is just what an intensely visual culture we're in right now. You know, images, icons, spectacle, it's ubiquitous, right? Just you you wake up, you you grab your digital device, you turn it on, and there it is, color, design, sound. Um, how does art fit into that yeah. scheme? You're going to give me the, the easy answer for that, I know, Wayne. Thanks. <laughs> it's, it's a massive question. I realize yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I kind of look at that in two ways. One is the plethora of images that we consume by the thousands is proof of the importance of the visual discourse. Um, we, we wouldn't have invented that if, if visual wasn't saying something we needed. Um, the downside of it is it turns us into consumers instead of contemplators. And we just gobble down images left and right, many of which were made to look at slowly. Um, so, but, but it shows the importance. And you know, I, I like to get students to do a thought experiment where they try to imagine the world without images. Um, just walk around for a day trying to do that. Um, and, and you come up with a blank, uh, a blank culture, and we can't bear that. So it proves the need for it, but it also proves the, um, how easily we get into distraction uh, instead of slow thought. I didn't live then, but if I imagine going to the medieval world where there were actually very few images and they, they were focused on icons in a church, um, portraits of the ruler in the town square, but very few images. And I wonder what that experience must have been like compared to ours where it's overwhelming uh, numbers of images. Yeah, that's it. That's such an interesting question. The other thing that would have been true for them at that time is that everything they handled or encountered every day had been made by hand, right? I mean, so it had been made by themselves or artisans or something else. So they were living in a handmade kind of world, too, uh, pre-machine. Interesting. Now, this conversation of all the heat of politics, all the plethora of images, all the rush, um, how does one practice art then in these contexts? Um, do we need to withdraw to the studio and just be very contemplative, or do we need to be out in the mix, you know, making spontaneous work um, like the younger generation lately has been, been arguing for? Uh, I recently read a chapter from a book it seems unrelated. The book is Caring for Children as Spiritual Practice. And the first chapter is Contemplating in Chaos. And it's a theologian, and she's going through the history of how we've thought we get close to God. Mm. And by and large, the church has argued the way we do that is by somehow withdrawing and, and having a contemplative practice in silence. That was mostly available to men. 
because they weren't having to change diapers. Mm -hmm. um, and she's asking about what's the real life of a woman who is spiritually seeking, who is managing small children, the chaos of domestic life, etc., and asking if there isn't another model for what contemplation means, i.e., contemplation in chaos. Right, right. It's a fascinating, you know, and we have grandkids, so I'm looking at this, but yeah, right. Um, so so it's, it's really crucial, it's wonderful in terms of thinking about family. Right. But it struck me as very adaptable or relevant to thinking about art making in chaos. Mm -hmm. We want to be contemplative, we want to, we don't want to do one liners, um, but the world is insanely chaotic and fast moving. I don't have an answer to this. I'm I'm throwing it out as a, a parting question. Well, yeah, and, and let me. Why don't Why don't I sort of add this right alongside? Uh, we have many, many artist friends, right, Wayne? Like yeah. dozens, hundreds, probably of artist friends that we know. Very few of those folks have the privilege of just making art for a living or making a living out of art. So they're all cobbling together other stuff, other jobs, other obligations. And even if they are selling some things, they're, what, maybe making enough money to cover the cost of their materials in their studio space, even on a good day, right? So I, I think it applies uh, just to the general sort of chaos. Um, yeah. I, and I always marvel at, at I, I continue to marvel at and be impressed by and respect uh, artists, and again, some of our friends who, you know, they just find a way. They find the time, they find the space, and they, over years, they keep doing the work. Um, yeah. I have such respect for those folk. Yeah. But one of the things she does at the end of the chapter, which I think is kind of revolutionary, um, you know, she points out how even even those of us who do find that time to keep making are still spending a lot of energy and resistance of of having a model that says the right way to do this is to get out of the rat race and be contemplative oh uh, yeah the failure is to get sucked in and be busy all the time right then she then turns the theoretical physics oh, it says, wow. says physicists now understand that at the molecular level there actually is a dance between chaos and order. Oh. And, and, and what if that's not a bad thing? What if that's inherent? He turns to Genesis and says, we all love the phrase, uh, and in the beginning God made. But why do we jump over the phrase that everything was void and chaos? Chaos, right. We, we think God eliminated chaos by ordering and creation. And she says, what, what if that's not quite the case? What, mm -hmm. what if there is a dance between order and chaos um, and that actually is part of our content, a way of being. And instead of spending so much energy resisting, what if we turned our energies and flowed with that and allowed, allowed the chaos of life and making even folding it into what we consider part of spiritual practice, or in our case, artistic practice? I, well, I don't know. This seems like this has great implications for my my mindset my posture as a maker um that i could stop wasting time resisting and i don't know well and you use the word flow and we and we talk 
you know, in terms of creative work about hitting that place of flow where it, it, we sort of seem to lose our sense of self and the making, the creating just in, ensues, right? And But yeah, why not flow amid the chaos? I mean, what I've been thinking about the Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3 a, a lot um, for the last few years, really. And um, so the thing that God makes... Uh, so there is an order that comes to it, but it, it's not ever static. It, it's it's alive. <laughs> it's dynamic. So you have a living God making a living creation. So change is built in. It's. I mean, I. I think I find myself, you know, wishing, ho- hoping for stasis, right, for everything to stop and just have some kind of quiet center. But that's actually not the nature of of the created world we live in either. It's a constantly changing in emotion, um, including um, life and death. Um, so so what's, this book sounds fascinating. Do you have the title of it handy? Uh, Caring for Children as Spiritual Practice. Ah, and the author? Bonnie, Bonnie Miller McLemore, M-C-L-E-M-O-R-E. Mm. Yeah, I, I get, like I say, most of it, it applies to family life sure that that set up chapter about how do we how do we live in order and chaos um and and of course it's analogous because raising your kids is you you can't get closer to the center of being than trying to manage all that and love them and figure it out right right Um, and and ultimately that's what art's all about is kind of trying to get to the center of being and express it Right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a grandfather. You're a grandfather, so it, it's interesting to watch the next generation of kids from infancy into childhood and beyond. Watch them form, right? Um, and, and just what an incredible and intensive process it is. And yeah, it, we really can't think about studio practice and art making without thinking about that kind of formation that, that goes on. How, in this case, living persons come into being and take their form. It's just, it's fascinating. Um, uh, both the ease at which that happens, but then the resistance and challenge of it as well, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. fascinating. And it's remarkably analogous, analogous to art making. Yes. Um, like, like, I keep thinking, when will I ever actually learn this? Every time I start to make a painting, I have in mind where it should go. It refuses to go there. Right. I, I, I despair over what a failure it is. Yes. I decide, well, it's failed. I may as well just, you know, muck about and see if I can learn a few things before I throw it away. Right. Um, which means I've stopped resisting. I've stopped worrying. I've stopped being self-conscious. So then I start doing things, and all, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that's not bad. <laughs> right. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, so finally, I've gotten myself out of the way um, and, and stopped trying to muscle it about and make you know the world according to Wayne. Um, and pretty soon, I'm listening and I'm letting. Yes, I'm still part of it, but I, now I'm collaborating as opposed to driving it. Right. And the best works are the ones that come out of that dance um, between you know success and failure. Maybe that's chaos and order. 
Um, and then the work comes out, and to the point where when I come back to the studio and see it, I often think, "Who made that? That's that's like that's good. That's better than the stuff I make." <laughs> well, I I like the idea of the, the dance between chaos and order. I I I think that's probably where real life happens, right? Even though, you know, actually, what I think I want is to have my world perfectly ordered and everything buttoned down and every object in its place and et cetera, et cetera, and a schedule that runs smoothly. But that's actually not how any of my life really goes. It's, it's, yeah, it's that dance in between those places. Yeah, yeah. It goes Um, back to this question of beauty. Because the, the, the ancient Greek notion of beauty was finding the perfect harmonies and proportions. Right. That's too static. Yeah. You know, that's why, that's why beauty doesn't work for art and culture anymore. Um, but later notions are, no, beauty is this chaotic dance of, you know, meaning and whatever, you know. So. <laughs> right, right. So what are you working on right now in your studio? Uh well when i retired i did a show of um what i call my soul paintings they were these big two foot by six foot paintings where i was trying to figure out the relation of spirit and matter um i kind of finished that series and so i spent the last year doing a lot of little fast pieces to kind of look for a new grounding um and i've been happy with that more playful process i probably have a couple hundred pieces made in that way but then last week I felt the need to go back to these big, more solemn ones. Um, so I've stretched some giant heavy watercolor paper and uh, I'm back to making a new round of soul paintings. But this time they're extremely gnarly. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to make them so sensuously beautiful that you want to look at them and so texturally um, aggressive and gnarly that you're not sure you want to be near them. Uh-huh. So playing with that tension. Yeah, and which goes back to that earlier exchange we were having about work being engaging or arresting and what it is that visually that'll stop me and make me want to look in more deeply, but then maybe I don't want to stay there too long, right? There's that yeah. th- that yeah. kind of question. Well, I also I also just finished a, uh, a, an artist book. It's an edition of 30 called Light, Where's the Land? And they're, they're inkwash landscapes um, where I've sort of visually asked the question, which is more actual, the, the physical land or the light on it? Um, and it's a backhanded way of asking the spirit matter question. Mm. So it's a, it's a little book of about 35 images. There's a there's a visual narrative of this landscape that begin with kind of normal and then nature goes crazy and it's furious and gets more and more abstract and then it returns back to more normal with color coming in. A little essay at the end about about the process that I that I followed. So Oh, that's interesting that. and it, it's relevant to uh a thing I'm working on here at Upper House that our arts working group is working on. We're going to have another Let the Arts Speak conference uh, coming up this spring. And uh, the theme I've wanted us to pursue is the land. 
Um, I, I, I think it's something that we need to talk about right now and yeah. just figuring out uh, who to have come and talk to us about it and not just out of the visual arts, but uh, maybe out of the, some other disciplines as well, probably music, poetry, but who knows, maybe even a conversation with scientists as well. And uh, yeah. so uh, I'm actually work. I'm actually working on that right now, Wayne. So the, the discussion, your discussion of the land. Uh, so I need to see a copy of that book. That's what I'm really saying to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no, that sounds like a great, a great second let art speak session. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, that first conference that uh, you you gave the keynote address at. Um, last year, we just we were so pleased with how it went. We just hoped that it had a future as a kind of event here uh, repeated. So, um, yeah. thanks for helping us launch that. Uh, I we're probably about at the end of our conversation here. Any final thoughts that you have, Wayne? Um, that's the big challenge yeah. to offer the profound sum summative uh <laughs> comment but well, uh, yeah, i've got actually a simple uh simple and um a number of years ago barry kramus edited a diva scene um uh episode what what do you call it journal uh, journal thank you yeah, yeah. um and the theme he invited a whole bunch of people to write short 500 to a thousand word pieces and the and the theme of it was what what work of art has most inspired you um, and I made this long list, and, the, and there is a long list for me. But in the end, I decided the work of art that most inspires me is the one I haven't made yet. Oh. And so my summary would be um, keep making. That simple. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, a, it's a good challenge, but it, it's a good encouragement too, right? Um, I often have younger people ask me, and I and I know they've asked you this over the decades as you were teaching classes and so engaged with students. You know, well, what do I need to do? <laughs> mm -hmm. What do I need to do? Right? Well, keep keep doing the work, and um, and that yeah, that, uh, that that's a beautiful image of of the piece that. Uh, you want to see most is the one you haven't made yet that it, it, it's out there. Maybe, maybe that'll happen today uh, when you yeah. go to work in the studio, right? Yeah. That's so, right. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, uh, as always, thanks for a good conversation. Uh, you always lead me to think about so many things and uh, help me integrate uh disparate pieces in my own life and mind uh so grateful to have this conversation yeah, today uh, that's, that's a two-way street for sure thank you yeah. thanks for joining us if you enjoyed today's podcast be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app also be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org the upwards podcast is supported by the stephen and laurel brown foundation it is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, 
and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.